And now the main event. Uh, on your behalf, I am delighted to welcome today's special guests. Judging by the sold-out nature of today's breakfast, I know you are very interested in what he has to say. His name and the firm he leads have as high a profile as any in the global economy and today's financial markets. Lloyd Blankfein is the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the Goldman Sachs Group. It's a leading global investment banking, securities, and investment management firm, and a critical player in the North American and the global economy. Mr. Blankfein has held a variety of senior roles at Goldman Sachs for the, for the past 30 years. His journey began in 1982 when he joined the J. Aaron Currency and Commodities Division of the firm after practicing law. He was named partner in 1988 and became the co-head of his division in 1994. Prior to being appointed chairman and CEO, he served as the firm's president and chief operating officer from 2003 to 2006. Harvard educated, Mr. Blankfein is active in a number of nonprofit organizations. Among them, he's a member of the Dean's Advisory Board at the Harvard Law School, a member of the Dean's Council at Harvard University, clearly a loyal alum, and a board member of the Partnerships of New York City. He is joined in conversation this morning by one of Canada's most distinguished business executives, Gordon Nixon, the President and CEO of RBC, one of Canada's leading financial institutions. Gentlemen, thank you both very much for joining us, and the podium is yours. Thank you very much. Good morning, Lloyd. Good morning. This is a new job for me, maybe a second <laughs> career. I feel very powerful. You are very powerful, that's well, why. I, I feel much more powerful <laughs> no. as a journalist than I do as a, or a, or a, or an, an asker of questions. I'm delighted to have you here in Canada, and I know the audience is uh, very much looking forward to your perspective on what's going on around the world and what's going on in the financial services industry, which is uh, certainly facing some challenges. I uh, thought we'd start with, with your views on the global economy, and perhaps you could start in Europe and sort of make your way around the world, and, uh, and, and perspective on what you see in terms of growth, and perhaps more importantly, you know, what are the, 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 the challenges out there that, uh, that we're all going to have to deal with over the next period of time? Well, there's not enough time for all the challenges, but let me just g give you some perspective. Listen, let me get to the, um, let me give away the punchline. The punchline is, I think, you know, on, on a world basis, this is, you know, the world's not going to come to an end. We're going we're gonna to muddle through, but there are a lot of challenges and a lot of risks. And I think the largest outcome, the largest percentage likely outcome by far is that we get through. And, and I think there's a lot of actions that were to been taken that offer some relief, but there's several things that um, could cause things to derail, in which case things will be a lot tougher for a lot longer. Uh, but you asked, you asked about Europe, um, and I think the biggest problem that Europe has is growth, and the tail risk problem is a real go-off-the-rail bust-up of, uh, bust of the euro. Uh, the way a few months ago we would have said that the, the two big issues for Europe is do they have the capacity to bring the periphery along and to uh, buy enough time and, and give enough support so they can you know, cure their ills. Um, and then the second one, do they have the political will? With the latter question probably being the most important question, you hear all the pundits in the world and says, you know, the German electorate will never support this and never support that and it's going to go and you know, blow up. I would say 
if we saw anything uh, in the last few months, um, is you know, it confirms that they have the capacity because you can see they've gone all in uh, to extend, and I believe that they have the capacity uh, to do it. But was a surprise to, to many, but hasn't been a surprise to me for a long time because I go and I talk to some of the leaders there, is the political will to make Europe work and the Euro work. You have to remember that it was a political construct, not just an economic construct, and they wear the history very close to the surface. And the importance of Europe, if this, is, if this fails, it'll be 100 years before you can go back and think of the united Europe. And the consequences of a disunited uh, Europe feel very, very heavy to the leadership. And so you could see Mrs. Merkel, you know, certainly the ECB wouldn't have been able to provide the virtually unlimited liquidity they were able to without the acquiescence of the leadership of Germany. And in a lot of these places around Europe, the pro-European party and the election center has won. And the opposition is even more European oriented. So I feel that it's going to be a muddle through. The real issue, of course, is growth. And the real issue is how do they solve the long-term problems? And those things are, are antagonistic to each other because to solve the problems means austerity. Austerity means deflation and not growth. And that's the real challenge. How do they sponsor growth in the short, in the short term and promise the market austerity in the, and balance, more balanced budgets in the long term? And that's the challenge ahead. But I think they have enough time and the political will uh, to get this done. But there are challenges. And there's a chance of going off the rail there. But I think it's unlikely at this point, much less likely than it would have been a few months ago. So, so you think your, your old partner, Mario Draghi's done the right thing with the bond purchase program? A lot of people would say he's just kicked the problem further down the road, but. Uh. Well, um, I would say that the first thing you have to do in any kind of triage situation is you have to stabilize the patient. And maybe that's another, maybe that's a different metaphor from kicking the can down the road, but I think they, they definitely needed to buy time they will merely have bought time if they don't engineer structural changes to the economies. And then we will look back and say, my god, we only bought time. We poured more money after bad money. And I wish we had faced up to the problem earlier. If they, on the other hand, use the time to engineer the structural change, which I think everybody knows needs to be done, the question is, is there enough courage in the political system to drive those changes to an electorate in the periphery that won't really love them? Um, then we'll say, we didn't kick the can down the road. We bought ourselves the necessary time to you know, achieve the result that we will have achieved. And so I'll let you know how it works out. And then in hindsight, I'll second guess. So moving, moving to Asia and uh, China in particular, emerging markets generally, but China in particular, and then we'll come back to the US. Sure. But uh, obviously, China is facing a bit of a slowdown. You've got significant operations over there. What's your view in terms of short-term, long-term prospects? Well, for well I'd say that in terms of things that could go wrong, um, the China hard landing versus soft landing uh, issue um, is, I would say, not the most extreme thing that could go wrong, but maybe the highest possibility of something that could go wrong with, you know, maybe not the most draconian consequence, but something that would really um, derail everybody's ambitions for an, you know, accelerating growth at something, because you know, a lot of the marginal demand in the world over the last couple of years has come from China, and the hopes of China stabilizing and then rebounding um, um, you know, is, very, very, is very important. And I think the jury is still out. Don't forget, China is going through not, you know, in China, the downturn was engineered to some extent, but it was not engineered 
um, you, know, you know, randomly, it was engineered because um, things in their structure, you know, were, you know, was making, you know, demand overheated. You know, you saw the real estate bubble in China, you know, when you're making, when you're making a lot of money and you're benefiting from a low currency, a low uh, currency, and you're accumulating wealth in the country and, and you can't, and you have a, um, a managed currency with exchange controls, there's only a few things you could buy, and those things could buy have a lot of competition to buy them, and you saw real estate prices dramatically in a very much overheated situation, and I think they put on the brakes. Also, every country which would grow at that faster rate needs a period of time when you slow up and you say, when are we going to write off our mistakes? Because undoubtedly, if, we're, if we've grown so much of over 10% for so long, and then when, the, when you had the financial crisis, go out and make a tremendous stimulus program through increased bank lending, how much of those loans are not going to be repaid back? How many of those airports that were all built at the same time will be in the wrong place? How many of those roads will go nowhere? Just in any place, that would be the case. We have a better mechanism in our economies for writing off mistakes. They write themselves off, much to our uh, you know, chagrin at times. But there, you need to slow up. And I think they did a good job of engineering that slow up. But like a plane that goes into a stall, you worry, you know, is it gonna, you know, is it gonna like, you know, you're gonna start those engines before we hit the ground? And I think that that's a, uh, that's one of the risks for the world. And it happens to be contemporaneous with a change in political leadership that hasn't, go, you know, that hasn't gone as smoothly. Um, and you know, not that it's going smoothly any place in the world, but it's not going smoothly uh, there. Um, and so I think that there is a risk there. Now, if you ask me how it works out, I think they've done an amazing job to this point. And I generally have a lot of confidence, and it goes back to the core values of the country and the quality of the people. And, and, and frankly, um, you know, it's only in China where you would regard a se you know, seven and change percent growth rate as a prompt for hand wringing. Uh, and I really do have confidence. But if this is the century of China, the way some people thought that the 20th century was the century of America, you know, it wasn't, you know, you had the <laughs> panic of 07 and the Great Depression and all these different movements, it's not going to be smooth. And when it goes bad, when we go through one of those moments in China, it won't feel as one of the bad years of the century. People will think, oh my God, what was I thinking to begin with? This is bad, and then it'll get better, and they'll thinking, what, what was I thinking when I changed my mind? Of course this is wealth being created here, big population, very commercial. Um, so I think it all works out. For a firm like ourselves, we have to make sure we scale our activities and stay engaged and keep ourselves active and engaged during the slower periods so that we preserve our opportunities during the busier periods. But net-net, I'm very confident in the outcome, but you have to recognize it is one of the risks of the world that instead of providing a lot of extra demand, uh, China disappoints. But it won't be for a long time if it does. In the US now, we've had five years peak to trough of virtually zero growth, high rates of unemployment, uh, fiscal imbalance, which is, uh, is um, quite remarkable and structurally unsustainable with very little political will to, to deal with it. I think here in Canada, we look at the US with, with amazement because we yeah, went who through Who are it. these people? Well, we went through this in the early 90s and, uh, and, and took some political action to put our fiscal house in order. Obviously, that's a bigger challenge in the United States, and we're adding a trillion dollars of debt year after year. Uh, you know, how does it unplay? You know, well, I'm glad, glad we could serve as a source of entertainment to the uh, Canadian community. Well, so how do you think the US does play out? 
I, you know, I think that that's a big risk also. The, the, the frustrating thing in the US is that the core is so strong and so good. You know, we have, um, you know, think of the immig you know, immigration. And by the way, you could average out and say almost no growth over five years, which includes the downturn. But right. basically, you know, don't, you know, that 2% was very hard fought for, so let's not ignore that. And it's a big economy, and 2% on a big economy is a big number, and I think it goes. But um, it's very, um, um, there are, these problems are self-afflicted to a great extent, and it makes it all the more frustrating, and it must be frustrating to watch when you saw the, you know, the saga of last summer with the debt ceiling and saying, why don't you vote for this, or why don't you compromise, or why don't you get this done? I would say it's sometimes more frustrating to watch something that you can, you know, you know it's like watching a, it's like being a voyeur and watching something where you see it spiraling and you just wish you could stop it, and it's, it's within everybody's power to stop it. Um, and I think it's a, you know, it's a defect of the political system to some extent, um, but historically in the U.S., you know, it's never crashed and burned, and people do assert themselves, and people do eventually have that profiles and courage moment where they step out and they make those changes, and it, doesn't, and it won't look like that before it happens, um, but generally it happens, and I think people have to, you know, the way that America has always is historically been structured, it's a two-party system, it's not a parliamentary system. What you were supposed to do is you were supposed to have, frankly, the moderates of each party getting together and forming a majority that's a recognizing that each party will, you know, the left will have its radical left and the right will have its radical right, but the country was designed to steer a course because the group that was supposed to put together was not to have one party get, you know, you know, you, know, you weren't supposed to have the moderates in one party accede to its extreme. You're supposed to have the moderates in each get together and fashion a plan. So things were supposed to change, but not that much all at once. That's assuming there are moderates. Yeah, well, there are always moderates, but the moderates, but if you, if you, um, if moderation is a pejorative, you won't, you're not going to have a lot, and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a guarantee of your failure at the polls, which it seems to be in some cases, that's not going to be, uh, that's not, it's a, you know, that's not a good environment for compromise. Um, so, you know, things have always worked themselves through, and I think they will now, but that fiscal cliff um, thing is looming as a real problem, and it doesn't, and it doesn't have to be. Because the basic, uh, you know, the basic guts of it are uh, are good, and I think having, you know, relying on the central bank to shoulder all the burden of charging the economy and abandoning fiscal, you know, the fiscal side to the because of the difficulty in the political process is, um, you know, is unfair. It gives us an un, a skewed, an unfair um, view of, of of real the, the real. I think. You know, in a lot of ways, courage, whether it works or not, you know, is still open and people debate it, but certainly people are exercising their powers that they've been granted fully. But, you know, if you're only working, you know, if only one side of the car is driving, you're going to go in circles. So we get Simpson Bowles, we just get it two years too late with a couple trillion dollars of extra debt on top. It is, but, you know, sometimes the politics need that time to sort out because you have to bring everyone with it. You know, the fact that it's inefficient in the long term is, the efficiencies that we take in order to get people to throw in, in the long term are worth it and is really what makes the system stable. So I'm not worried that where we get it, and let me just say on the more optimistic side, people have really thrown, you don't get a debate in the United States of whether the US has a fiscal deficit problem um, or whether it has to be solved. 
that a year ago, that would have been debated. Now the debate is how are we going to solve it? Are we going to solve it on the revenue side? Are we going to solve it on the, um, on the expenditure side? Um, but there's no one who's saying we really should widen the deficit or the, wide, the deficit as wide as it is is not a problem. Everyone accedes to it. But, do, but the real debate is about how to get it done and also the nature of the government that's the consequence of how it gets done. Obviously, if you spend more, government's going to grow. If you shrink the budget, government will contract, and that has implications for the republic that have been, by the way, debated since Jefferson and Hamilton. It's, it's an ongoing debate always in America. But if you think about what's been accomplished in the last year, everyone knows we have to solve the problem. How to solve it has resulted in an impasse. And, but the fact that everybody agrees it needs to be solved is really the most important thing. But it seems to me that, that it's a math problem. And as you said, if you've got you know, slow but stable growth for an extended period of time here, then ultimately revenues have to come up, go up and expenditures have to go down, neither of which is particularly healthy in terms of, of fostering economic growth. If you have taxes going up in the United States and you have expenditures going down, I mean, ultimately that has to happen if you're going to solve that math problem in a slow growth world. It's the same in Europe and the same everywhere. You know, we all grew up reading Keynes and it says spend more money. So we only have to do two things. We have to spend more money to charge up the economy and we have to spend less money in order to shrink the deficits. All it goes to show, whether you're a country or a company, is when you get in trouble, your options are reduced. And so the, you know, this is not easy because the options have been reduced. You can't go out and, you know, we already had it, you can't go out and have another stimulus and look at the consequences to the federal, to the balance sheet as a result of what that'll be. What you're gonna have to do, I think, is you're going to have to not shrink the account, not push austerity in the near term, because that would be, you know, that's the fiscal cliff, and you're going to have to keep going on certain things and keep the, not the stimulus, but not take away the punch bowl in the near term. But you're going to have to convince the market and the lenders and galvanize the country that in the longer term you're going to get those things done. So this goes back to your, your point about kicking it down the road. You're going to have to show the resolve to solve this problem over the longer term, but in the short term, uh, you know, it's not going to be very good if the medicine you give kills the patient. And so that going back to your, the way you framed the first question, which is right, what do you think about Europe and, blah, 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 and what do you think about growth? You need growth also and you can't, you know, you can't austere yourself. Uh, into, a, uh, into a higher GDP. So I think the issue is going to be I'm all for implementing budget changes that accelerate over the long term, but in the short term, I wouldn't, um, I, wouldn't take money, uh, I wouldn't take too much money away from people or cut back on a lot of expenditure programs. Moving on to the social implications of what has occurred over the last five years. The, the way I describe it to my kids is that our generation, you and I are the same generation, had an incredibly, incredibly lengthy party. Uh, we're now suffering from a hangover. We're turning to our kids. I'm sorry, this is how you talk to your kids? That's, we're, we're, we're now turning to our kids and we're saying it's, it's your job to clean up and I'll, to, I'll do the uh, same thing. I'll to say, pay the bill. Gord is suffering from a hangover. Right. So the, uh, so you look at the next generation, you have, you have very high youth unemployment. I mean, in Europe, the numbers are staggering. Even in the United States, particularly, if you look at the real youth unemployment numbers, they're you know, well into the high double digits. Um, and, um, 
and you've got the Occupy movement, you've got a lot of social unrest, um, the inequality issue. Obviously, Goldman has been to some degree at the center of, uh, of that discussion and uh, debate. You know, what is your take on the social implications of what has happened in the financial services industry and the global economy and how that plays out and what the impact of that might be in terms of uh, uh, political flexibility going forward? I think the, the last question is really the punchline, you know, is really, you know, draws out the punchline. I've said, look, let me say it's not just been the last five years. You know, to some extent, we're stewards of the, of the economy. To some extent, not really, we're, you know, we're marketeers, we play our role in it, but, you know, we, you know, in good times, you know, we walk around like, you know, to some extent, you know, this is, you know, this is a bad analogy, but there are people, you know, if you're going to be the samurai class, if you lose a war, you know, you got to be prepared to take the consequences of it. If you're going to get the benefits when things are good, because you carry yourself in a certain kind of way, you're going to have to, and it's not unfair to, for people to ask you to bear the brunt of the failure of the system that you were, you know, you were a big part of. It's not just five years. If you look at the widening of inequality in the United States, um, it's, been a, it's been a march of over, you know, been a march for 30 years. And so people, and to some extent, I don't think there's a lot of social unrest in the United States. You know, maybe people worry that there'll be more, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to dare anything uh, because, you know, there's, you know, I think it's appropriate to be nervous. But don't forget, the United States has a political system, and you can vote, and you have access, and people's voices are heard, and you get these tectonic, you know, you get these shifts, and so that appropriately takes, you know, the starch out of it because people can express themselves at the ballot box, and they do, but. You don't need to have social unrest, per se, to recognize that one of the, you know, the, the two goals should, of the financial system and the economic system, not just the financial system, but the whole economic and the production system should be to expand the wealth of the world and to distribute it fairly. And the two are linked, but they're totally separate because if you were the richest country in the world and wealth was disproportionate, you wouldn't have a stable society. And if you had the mo and, and I can tell you, you have a lot of stable societies that are just stable and deadly poor. And so you need to achieve both. And I think in the United States, over the last generation or two, we've been much better at generating wealth and much less good at, um, at distributing it in a way. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not, no one's going to accuse me of being a socialist, and I'm not. And I don't believe in wealth distribution, redistribution over producing. And if you believe in production, then you have to believe in incentives um, and the consequence of giving people incentives. They have to bear the benefits and the fruits of it. But over the long term, if the system works well, it should accomplish both goals. And it has a, hasn't accomplished enough of the second goal in the right way. And that's what the distress is over. And you know, it's different things. You know, if you're on the front of people's minds. And you know, you know, different people will get disproportionate. I'm not saying the attention that the financial industry gets, or you know, our institutions per se, or us per se, is unfair. It's of course disproportionate, relative. And, and you know, it's just you know, it's the nature of things. And that happened after the depression with you know the you know the kind of household word uh, word big financial institutions. And I think it's uh, certainly, if you me, it's you know, it's distracting to say the least. But, it, but, it, but I don't want to suggest that we're repelling the notion of it because it's um, unfair. It's just disproportionate. It's fair to the extent that we are fiduciaries in some part for the financial system, and it hasn't worked well enough for everybody. And so we have to, you know, we have to go out and have a good conversation, dialogue, recommending you know, changes to it and get engaged. 
Now, the trauma in the US was so recent and so powerful that we're not having necessarily a good conversation or dialogue. You know, people get called in, other people are held at arm's length, people count the number of times you go, you go, you know, you visit the White House or you go into this building as if it were, as if, you know, the people who manage the, and regulate the economy are somehow doing something wrong if they talk to the private sector leaders of the economy. I mean, it's, it's a certain amount of craziness has to dissipate, and then we have to engage in a very, very serious conversation about something that affects all our well-being. CEO of Goldman, a socialist, that would be actually a pretty good headline. Um, I've seen every other headline. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> our industry, and uh, particularly in Europe and the United States, it's a little bit better here in Canada, but has obviously lost a tremendous amount of trust. Uh, and. Uh, you know, how does that trust get recaptured? Is, 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 is that starting to happen? Uh, what does the industry have to do to uh, restore? I mean, this is an industry that is built on trust, yet it's probably the least trusted industry of virtually any today. You know, how do we shift that and how does that change? You know, I think you have to, I mean, I think it would be a good start would be not to have any more stories surface that further erode trust. That would be a, a good start would be to stop. Um, having problems, uh, and I don't know that we've run out of problems yet. Um, and I think what happens, um, you know, when you have a crisis like this and you investigate, there are things that would have looked bad at any time that you suddenly discovered that you didn't discover before. And there are things that wouldn't have even looked bad in the prior times that look bad today in the context of what we now know, uh, the, you know, with after acquired information about how things turned out. And I think we have to work our way through our problems and the, and the, you know, obviously the anger has to dissipate and get this, and the response to it and the reticence that some leaders in the industry, including myself, have had about getting out and engaging in a positive way, that has to recede. And then go out and run your business as well. Do, you know, accomplish your social purpose about managing risk and helping to finance good ideas and making good selections on what gets financed and what doesn't and perform the role that you have in the system, but also get out and engage and show your bona fides as people who are working for um, you know, taking positive steps, even if some of those steps would appear controversial and not politically correct uh, at the moment. Um, and that has to be done. Now, I will say as somebody there, you know, if it's so difficult and painful to lift your head above the parapet, then you have to, you know, that it's not going to be effective even if you, even if you took the risk and did it. So, and, and this is all normal, unfortunately. And I think the pendulum, you know, I think time has to go. Uh, the, you know, some of the pain has to recede and we have to roll up our sleeves and get to work. And if people see us working and engaging and doing the right thing and sharing our views and it's right and it makes sense and we communicate more, that would represent a step in the right direction. And if we do that about 200 years, people will, tr will start to trust us. So financial regulation. Um, you know, I'm of the view that financial regulation and the, its complexity is having a, a much more significant negative impact on economic growth globally uh, than most regulators or central bankers will, will admit to. Obviously, that's debated. Uh, but it's had a huge impact, and it's had a huge impact particularly in the capital markets side of the business, which is, uh, is a virtually 100% of, of your business. What is your perspective on, on you know, regulation? I mean, is it, is, it, is it having a big drag on economic growth? Is it too complex, as fortunately one of the uh, uh, central bankers uh, said in Jackson Hole, or one of the senior executives of the Bank of England? Um, 
it's obviously very politicized, the whole industry. I mean, is, is you know, what sort of drag is, is regulation and politicization of the industry having in terms of our ability to move forward? Well, look, you can't have gone through what everybody has gone through. And I mean, and forget about us, forget about the, you know, the people in the street, the people who had no, you know, you can argue from today who's more responsible, was this, you know, but you know, certainly the great mass of people had no responsibility at all and bore the consequences of it. You can't go through that and then say we're not gonna go out and do something different, you know, so that it's less likely to happen again. Forget about whether you'll never have another 100-year storm. Of course, every 100 years you'll have a 100-year storm and things will, some things will happen again. But you have to go out and you have to take steps. You have to have different regulation, maybe more regulation in certain respects. And so you're not going to ever be in a situation, I think it sounds absurd to say, you know, to just talk about the burdens of regulation without talking about what's driving people to want to regulate. And so you have to, you know, first thing you do, you have to, you have to meet that, um, you know, injunction. It's it, it just, it's essential. Can you imagine if I weren't in this industry and observing the industry and I was listening to somebody say, oh my God, this is going to kill, you know, this is going to really hurt you if you put more constraints on me, having just gone through what I've gone through. Of course, you have to be realistic about this. We need that. What I think we need to do, what I think is our, not our privilege, but our responsibility as practitioners in the market uh, is that we have to, to, as best as we can, spell out the consequences of regulation and different things and the trade-offs and the political system will appropriately make those judgments. And by the way, they may make those judgments and then revise those judgments. The pendulum will go and they'll recede. Right now, if you polled everybody, everybody would, if there's a trade-off between regulation or let's say risk and growth, people would say, I'll abandon growth, just don't be so risky. But you know, if there's a, you know, in a couple of years, if there's less lending, in other words, the consequence of so much more capital means less leverage. Less leverage means less loans per dollar of capital. Um, and if you, ha if you live with the consequences of a world that's less leveraged, in a couple of years when it's receded, you might say, you know something? I'd like to revise that position where we are. I think our job is to explain to people what the consequence of this is. Uh, to people, make them understand, and then accept the fact that the pendulum may swing a little far because of just the recency of the trauma. Look, we never had more than two hurricanes. We never had more than in the, in, in the eastern end of Long Island, where I, you know, where I, in Long Island where I live. And in ever, except for the summer, you know, we had four. If you priced hurricane insurance off of four hurricanes, nobody ever built a house again there. And we never had it before. So insurance premiums quadrupled the next year, and over the next five years, it went down. And actually, the year after those four hurricanes, there was no more risk of four hurricanes than there was the year before it. But sentiment and riskiness and trauma and how painful things are have a real effect on people's calculus of the risk they want to take going forward. And over time, it gets to a sensible level. And so I think regulation is best done if you, you know, you, you had the Depression in 1929, and the first legislation that was passed was the Securities and Exchange Act of 33, followed by the Securities and Exchange Act of 34, 35, 37, 39, 40, 40, and it kept getting modified along the way as you felt around for it. I think that will happen now, um, and doing it. Now, I can address separate pieces. I think 
you know, Basel and additional capital, I think that's the most important thing. Banks should have more capital and more liquidity. Now, devil's in the detail, if you attach certain kinds of capital requirements onto kind of um, securitized products because that was what seemed to blow up mostly before and you make it excessive, then banks won't hold inventories of securitized products and where's the mortgage market gonna go in the United States? And you'll say, that's a good thing, who needs a mortgage market? Look how it got us into trouble. But four years from now, if the only housing that's getting financed is by government administrations, we won't like that. And so those are the kinds of things. So where do you wanna be on the spectrum? Well, like, we can't go to an extreme because we don't want to live with the extreme. We don't want to impoverish ourselves by saying you have to run yourself with no risk. So that's how you get to do it. I don't want to diminish the exercise by saying it, but if you have to run yourself so you won't get hurt by the 50-year storm, the problem that occurs once every 50 years, the other 49 years in between are not going to be that fun. But if you run yourself so that you could get, you know, and so that's, you know, that's how you have to think about it. But we have to have these conversations, not as a 30,000 foot, we have to get right down. This is the predictable consequence of attaching this risk weighting to this kind of asset. And there has to be, and by the way, there is, certainly I could speak for the US, there's a lot of engagement between the writers of the regulation and the practitioners of the market, as there should be. And the politicians, they get in the way, or do they? Uh... Well, everybody has, you know, there's, you know, there's, you know, it's bifurcated because even the politicians that seem to be saying provocative things have staffs that are trying to get it right and they're trying to get it right. You know, politicians have a number of jobs, including staying close. You know, look, you have to lead the electorate, but you have to be reelected by the electorate. So if you lead too far, you don't really draw people with you. So there's, you know, I, I, look, I, I don't think it's such an easy life trying to be a politician either. Um, with the pressures that they're under and the demands uh, uh, you know, on them. And you know, at the same time, I haven't liked everything that was done, nor have they liked everything that we did. Right. But if we switch jobs, neither one of us would find the other job so appealing either. So let's move to, because I think we're almost out of time here, let's uh, move to Goldman specifically. Um, obviously, you have some strategic challenges as a result of regulation and the changing of the, the markets. When you look at the return on equity across the capital markets business, it's come down, you know, dramatically. Um, and um, so how do you deal with that strategically going forward? And, and you know, is, is, is Goldman better off being a bank or debanking and going back to its traditional investment banking roots? I mean, it seems to me, I'm going to lead you here a little bit, but yeah. it seems to me that, that when you look at the model today, you know, Goldman would be better off going private and being a traditional investment bank as opposed to to you know, being subject to banking regulations under, uh, under Basel and, and, and the other rules. I mean, how do you deal with that strategically? These have to be things you debate quite sure. frequently. Sure. Um, one of the reasons, I would just say the way, the, U, the way the regulation is now structured, and the rules haven't all been written, and we're not sure, but the way the legislation as an outline, and you know this also, the, uh, for sure, you live with this. If you're a, a systemically important financial institution, a SIFI, whether or not you're a bank, you'll be regulated by, to a great extent as if you were a bank. And by the way, that's a policy decision. It makes sense. There are a lot of non-banks that are systemically important, that if they were misrun, they not only burden their own shareholders, but they become a systemic risk to the world. And since they can hurt the whole world, everybody has an economic interest in making sure that they're well run. So we could not shed 
the bulk of the regulations that attach to us, even if we were to become not a bank, we don't really shed those necessarily, and we're not sure exactly the details, but I don't think there's any appetite in the United States for us to be less regulated than we are effectively as if we were a bank. And so when we're not really in a position that we don't own that choice to, uh, to get out from under the regulations and be regulated as we were as a total non-bank. Right. And we'll have to see what the choices are, but we have no necessary intention today. But you know, the predicate of your question is that our activities are almost entirely non-commercial banking activities, right. non-consumer bank. Everything we do is in the wholesale market. Part of our problem in some kinds of cases is that we didn't deal with individuals, we only dealt on the wholesale level. So you would say we would fit logically in a system that, that had a lighter regulation for non-banks, but because of our size, because of our systemic importance, there's no real interest in taking away most of those regulations. So we'll have to really see what the choices are in the future. Glass Steagall. I mean, Sandy Wiles come out and said it should be reinstated. I mean, I think the misconception is there is that most of the high-risk balance sheet activities were always in the banking system, not in the investment yeah. banking system. But well, any, you know this. The any riskiest, rationale behind it? The riskiest activity in the world is uncorrelated. Uh, I'm sorry, is correlated lending, right. and most of the blow up of the problem, whether it took the form of CDOs or mortgages or leverage finance, they were all lending in one form or another that was all correlated to the, to the U.S. economy. When the economy went to recession, all those, car, I mean, something over 90% of the losses would do were on loan books, not necessarily the, you know, the trading activities, although I will tell you it turns out that a lot of those investment banks had a lot of loans and inventories also. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's, you know, you know we'll, we're going to stay a whole, you know, we're going to stay a wholesale bank. And we're a wholesale investment bank, and we're frankly the only ones left of that because, you know, old Solomon Brothers, part of Citigroup and everything. Morgan Stanley is, but as you know, they've just bought big retail business, and they've gone into a headlong into retail. We're, you know, gee, I hope we're right. But we think that Last man still, standing. Well, I don't want to be the last man standing for a few minutes. Um, <laughs> the point is... We have always, we made the decision as a matter of strategy 20 years ago that if we stayed focused on our core competences and not branch out in things that you do very well and that we never do as well as you do. Um, so we are advisors, we're financiers, we're asset managers in a wholesale world where our clients are governments and big companies and investment managers, and that's what we know how to do. We don't know how to do signage for our branches. We so, think we do that part pretty well too, I but think that's you do another that, issue. What? You do. <laughs> so I'm getting the hook here. But not necessarily so better. I'm getting the hook here. So I'll just end with one quick question. So U.S. stocks, U.S. bonds, U.S. dollar, U.S. real estate. Which would you go long? Which would you go short over a 12-month period? U.S. stock, bonds, real estate. I would say... And if you say long, everything all cues no, you no, being no, a politician. No, no, no. I would say... Um, oh, thank you. Um, I would say the, um, at this point, with the Fed... And central banks around the world, you know, the Japanese today just announced a stimulus program, begging to, you know, obviously erring on the side of willing to suffer a higher risk of inflation to eliminate some, some proportion of the risk of deflation. I accept that invitation to have higher asset prices. And so I would go long more the real assets. So in your thing, real estate. And they're obviously the central banks are putting a real penalty on holding cash. 
and are trying to incentivize everybody to go into higher assets. They may be unsuccessful, but I would tell you, with more inflationary expectations seeped into the world, that would be very positive today for the economic system. And by the way, there's a real playbook for stamping out inflation once you have it. It's hard to know what the playbook is for stamping out deflation. Just ask the Japanese. Right. If you think that every day the world's going to be cheaper tomorrow, every day you'll wake up and say, I'm not going to do it today. I'll wait for tomorrow. And tomorrow you'll say, I'll wait for tomorrow. In an inflationary environment, you say, I better do it today before it gets more expensive tomorrow. Inflation is cruel to certain groups, but we've gotten out of it before and we know how to do it. Deflation is much more insidious and much longer. And so I think. They, I will take the advice. I will follow the will of the central banks. They want asset prices to inflate. I'd rather hold asset prices than financial assets. So you're long real estate. I'm, I mean, not, I'm, not, I'm an that, advisor. It means you're long stocks, <laughs> short bonds, and you're uncommitted on I the US the, dollar. I have the cheapest form of currency, words and advice. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Lloyd, great to have you here. Uh, very uh, you know, candid uh, uh, and uh, upfront discussion, and uh, a great round of applause for our guest of honor. Thank you. And thank you, Gord. Wow. What a great way to start a Wednesday morning. Packed house, great conversation. Mr. Blankfein and uh, Gordon Nixon, on behalf of the club, I'd like to thank you very much for an interesting conversation this morning. What I heard was short the euro, buy China, and uh, the jury's still out on the US, and everyone of our generation needs to keep drinking water to get it over our economic hangover. So, um, Mr. Blankfein, we really appreciate you taking time out of your uh, very busy schedule to come spend time with us in Toronto this morning. Your 30 years of expertise and experience in the investment banking and financial field certainly have provided us with some thoughtful insights uh, on the global economy. And uh, we wish you to enjoy the rest of your stay in our city. And uh, thank you very much for kicking off our season. So thank you very much again. Um, I would once again thank you, Susan, um, and echo your thanks uh, to today's special guests, Mr. Blankfein and Mr. Nixon. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, and another special thank you to our sponsors, the TMX Group and Ernst & Young. Um, this concludes our television programming, which we broadcast on Rogers TV in the coming days. We're very grateful to Rogers and to 680 News for their continued support of Canadian club events. To learn more about the club and how to get involved, please visit us at canadianclub.org and have a wonderful day. This meeting is adjourned. Thank you.